Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist and cause marketer who's passionate about social impact and sustainability. Today, we're going to talk about a nectar of the gods, without which I may never have graduated from college, coffee. You may be wondering how (laughs) is coffee related to social impact? And it's quite simple, really. Coffee is cultivated in developing countries around the world, and laborers are often given dismal wages with a limited potential to support themselves and their families. So today we're going to meet a different sort of coffee aficionado, one who aspires to change that trend so the communities from which we get the sweet and sometimes bitter fruit of the gods can thrive. Before we meet our guest, I'd like to invite all of you to visit caremorebebetter.com. You can sign up for our newsletter to be the first to gain access to new episodes. You'll also find an action page for things you can do to make a difference, even coffee. The thing you know as coffee is simple. It's a bean at the heart of a fruit, dried and roasted to perfection for a cup of morning or afternoon bliss. Coffee is a treat I enjoy each day. And I'll confess, my coffee bill as an undergrad topped $300 a month. And that was over 20 years ago. So imagine what that would be today. To talk about all things coffee, I'm joined by Mokhtar Alkanshali, CEO and founder of Port of Mocha. Mokhtar is a historian, community organizer, and coffee innovator who envisions a world where industry empowers rather than exploits uplifts rather than represses. There is so much more to this story, and I'll invite Mokhtar to tell it. Mokhtar, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Now, as you can see, I am a coffee lover. I want to know what led you to decide that you needed to start a better coffee company with roots in Yemen. So let's start with a headline from December 2015 and an article in The Village Voice. It read, Two entrepreneurs set out for war-torn Yemen in search of a brew that could change coffee drinking forever. Tell us the story that led to that moment. Well, I actually remember that uh, that article and the the journalist Lauren Maui, who is a wonderful wine uh, journalist, also if you're interested in learning about wine. And I think I, I think she said when she wrote that piece and was published, she was like, "I got published in the Village Voice. I'm done now." <laughs> the journey to that was quite a quite a long journey. I think growing up in the U.S., I was always trying to, especially as a millennial, find my way in life. You know, right in college, you're trying to figure out what's your path and what are you going to do for the rest of your life. And these are very deep questions that kind of weigh heavy on on a college student. So there's there's the route that you know society, my parents kind of wanted me to go towards, which was become a doctor or a lawyer um, or engineer and. I chose an, a lawyer, so that was the, that was like the lesser of all evils. Uh, the lesser and, of evils to be a doctor or a lawyer. Yeah, for those kind, of, I feel like well, I don't like blood, so I can't be a doctor. Um, I'm not, I'm not good with math, so I can't be an engineer. <laughs> so let me give this law thing a, a try. And so I was going to trying to finish undergrad to go to law school, and I was working at the paralegal. At the same time, I was doing some um, policy work in local government in San Francisco. Uh, mainly around civil rights issues in, 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 the, in the community with different groups 
like the ACLU and the Asian Law Caucus. And I was always a fan of history. I always thought that history was a, just really wonderful to see the different patterns and different industries and people that, that lived before us and how the, that can kind of impact our, our world today. And I found out about coffee in the middle of this, this phase of life in college, moving from college to quote unquote real world. And I didn't really have any idea about business. I just was very intrigued in the history of coffee in Yemen's role. My family's you know, ancestral homeland, which I had visited a lot growing up. And so I was very connected to that land. And when I found out that there was a city in Yemen called Mocha, and there were these kind of these, these mystic monks who were first to discover coffee and have this thriving trade. And the first place to commercialize coffee began Yemen around the 1600s. That was very interesting to me. And, and the same time, this is 2012, 2013, this kind of third wave hipster coffee movement kind of started to spring about. Um, we're laughing, so I kind of want to know, like, do you have an experience in that? Or, Well, I laugh because it's in Santa Cruz County. I think I recall the exact moment almost where it seemed like there was three new coffee shops that I'd never seen before. And each of them was backed by a different set of 20-somethings who just decided that they were going to get into coffee. Pretty much fits my kind of role at that time. And so I, I saw this this group of people, this new terminologies, they were talking about single origin. And, and, and it was like, they were talking about the, the varietals and flavor notes. And so when you think of coffee, there's three waves they talk about a lot. The first wave being kind of the early 1900s, you know, where companies in the middle of the 1900s, like 1930s and 40s, really start to spring about like um, Folgers and the Hills Brothers, which is, they started actually in San Francisco. And then this brings into Maxwell and instant coffee, really, canned coffee. The second wave is uh, kind of think about friends in Central Perk, you know, where you have like, you know, this like, they kind of talk about Guatemalan coffees. You see the Frappuccino and Cappuccinos and, and, and Starbucks becomes like a really big movement there. And people mm-hmm. have this kind of third space between your work and your home. And I think friends that show really embodied the third space a lot. I think Howard Schultz, when he went to Italy and he saw people having this kind of coffee culture, he, he wanted to have that back in the U.S. So companies like Coffee Connections, which is another company that Starbucks acquired from a friend of mine named George Howell, a mentor of mine, which it was about connecting people through coffee. And I really like this. I love that part of coffee, even in the history of coffee back in the 1700s. It was a place where humans got together, people, and they fought and they had revolutions and arts and all kinds of wonderful things happened in these spaces. And so m- moves forward to 2012. The third wave, which is kind of really about transparency. People want to have more of an intimate knowledge of their coffee, sort of like wine. You know, they have turned cultivars and, and, and certain natural wines versus like non-naturals. You see this a lot in chocolate. And so I walked into one of those cafes owned by one of those 20-something-year-olds, and there was a cup of coffee that was $5, which at that time I thought was ridiculous. Just because I grew up in Brooklyn, where my dad had a bodega, it was a dollar, dollar fifty for a cup of coffee, and and so five dollars, I thought that was kind of expensive. So I, I remember, I remember buying this coffee and drinking it, and I remember it had like blueberries, like very distinct blueberries and honeysuckle, and it was super sweet and just this like really lingering aftertaste. So I talked to the barista and I asked the barista, "What did you, what did you put in this coffee? How does, you know, what is the flavor in there?" It's like, no, this is not any, there's no, there's no flavor. This is the, this is how coffee should taste. And he explained, mm-hmm. he explained to me how they have this like, direct relationship with this producer in Ethiopia. 
And so that that really started that journey for me. And from there, I I went, you know, began to try to understand this, this space more. And I, and I decided to think about this idea. Wow. So in that article, they mentioned war erupting in Yemen as you were bringing this coffee to market, something like two suitcases full of coffee and on your way out, war is erupting behind you. And you were quoted as saying, it's a miracle this coffee is here. So I would like to know more about that story. Like as you went all the way to Yemen to find this single origin coffee and ultimately bring that to market. I think in there's a point when any entrepreneur has like, their aha moment or there's a, there's an exploration phase kind of after it or during it. I hadn't had the aha moment yet, but I kind of I had an aha feeling like it wasn't crystallized yet, but I could feel that this is a, this is like a path I want to take. Um, and in this exploration moment or phase, it's really exciting because you get to like, this is where you, you dive into something new, a new world. You read the books, you go to the conferences, you watch the videos, you know, and for me, I, I, I did all these things. And at some point I realized I have to go to Yemen now, you know, I have to go and just kind of, and, and so and you can imagine for months I'm on my phone or my laptop reading books about coffee villages and elevations. Yeah, I hadn't seen a coffee tree, you know? And so then fast forward to um, the summer of 2013, I'm now in Yemen and I'm like seeing all this, you know, these, I mean, I remember being on a mountain village. It looked like we were above the clouds. You know, and, and it was just amazing seeing people live this uninterrupted way of life. They take care of the land and the land takes care of them. And I was like, this is so interesting. And I saw these farmers who they were just so far away from any idea of like those 20 year old cafes, you know, one of the 20 year olds in, in, in Santa Cruz or in San Francisco. And I just felt like their coffee needs to make it to these coffee shops. Like they, they have really interesting stories. I hadn't tasted their coffee yet. But I just felt like I, I have like a responsibility. Maybe I could just, I could figure out a way to connect them. There's a lot of potential in their coffee. A lot of, you know, interesting varietals are very old. The elevation of the coffee trees, the, the, there were certain natural characteristics that made their coffees like very, very like wonderful. But there were a lot of issues that they were having, how they were drying it. They were using these, um, these old methods where they, coffee would actually get ruined. They would, they would ferment it too much on, the, on these, like uh, on their roofs. Where they would dry the coffees. Uh, for those listening or watching this, coffee coffee is a tropical fruit, and it grows like a tree, almost like a shrub, and it has these kind of cherries, uh, and they ripen to become really red, a dark red. And in those cherries, you have kind of these layers of like husk, the outer skin, the, the sticky mucilage, the parchment. There's a silver skin, and then there's this, these two seeds inside it, which are actually the beans you roast. The beans that we roast and grind and brew, those are seeds of the coffee fruit, which is a cherry. Um, and, and it's like being in America, we're so disconnected from our food. We don't even know that. I didn't know this when I first started that coffee was a, was a fruit. I thought it was a button you pressed in Starbucks that just somehow came out. Um, and so when, when coffee is dried, they would dry on these rooftops. And unfortunately, they would, there was no airflow. Chickens would poop on them sometimes. You know, and, and, and then, it would, then, then they would mix the coffee from, from one farmer to another village to a different place. Um, and then by the time it made it to the, the exporter, it was just a mess. It was mixed and processed incorrectly. And so I brought in certain, certain tools and certain like new technologies. You know, my idea was how do I keep the traditional way of doing things, but how can I blend it with something of the new, new world? Kind of like me, you know, I felt, I felt myself as a, as a perfect idea. I mean, 
I'm Yemeni, but I'm also American. If we lived 400 years ago, you know, they would probably use a blender if they could. Because <laughs> there's some people who are purists. Like, no, we have to do things. Well, I'm like, how can we do it in a way that makes sense? Uh, especially when you're trying to build a business that's scalable. And so I, I brought on these things like moisture analyzers, drying bed systems, um, certain things that help improve the quality. But unfortunately, like there's a there's always a political reality to everything that you know we just don't sometimes see it. Um, but like our food, our clothes, they come from countries that sometimes are go that go through different difficult struggles, whether it's military dictatorships, revolutions, you know, pandemics, poverty, um, and a lot of times, unfortunately, like uh, exploitation. We don't know where our things come from. We if we knew that you know people were committing suicide in factories in China making our iPhones, how would that make us feel if we saw their faces? If we knew that people who make our, who, who pick our produce here in California, they're out in the 110, 110 115 degree sun and, and the, the people die from heat stroke. You know, I think it's an injustice when we're that disconnected from the reality of our producers. And in the case of coffee, you know, millions of coffee farmers around the world are being exploited uh, because of cheap coffee, just like fast fashion and fast food. And so in Yemen, Yemen was going through a very delicate and difficult in political situation where there was a dictator that ruled for 30 plus years and he was ousted during this revolution called this peaceful group movement called the Arab Spring, where millions of young people around the Middle East were just fed up with living under these dictatorships and wanted civil liberties and rights that they saw their people around the world have through social media. Um, and so... I decided to start a business in the middle of this movement, which again, like having, you know, not knowing the difficulties that I that were ahead of me, I probably would have been more cautious, but I just felt really deeply about this idea. And so as I was progressing in my business and as I was moving forward with, uh, with this, for every like one step, I would get nine issues that would come out of nowhere. Um, and at one point, the country went into civil war on March 25th, 2015, about two and a half years into this project. And I woke up one night with explosions around me and missiles being dropped. And, and I thought there were laser beams being shot in the sky, but there were anti-aircraft machine guns. And, you know, it's just like, I've never, I never knew nothing of war except what I watched on TV or read about in books. But to live it, experience it, it's very, it's scary. It's, it's sad. It's, it's also very sad because you eventually normalize it and, and people around the world, they, they, you know, especially children, they live through these kinds of things and they're traumatized for their lives. So as I was building my business and my, in my, my value chain over in Yemen, this happened. And so I was trying to leave to attend. And I'm giving you guys the, the brief version. I was working with these communities in Yemen. I was trying to leave to attend a coffee conference in Seattle. That was kind of the coffee Olympics, right? It's like a hundred plus countries you know, 15,000 people from around the world. And my goal was, okay, this is where I'll find buyers. You know, I'll be able, I'll be able to showcase our coffee from Yemen and the work the, the farmers have been doing. And before I left, you know, a couple of days, the war began and they bombed the airports. So oh my. I was stuck with those two briefcases or suitcases full of coffee samples. And it's a longer story, but being kidnapped and going through difficult things there, it was just really hard. And all along I had my samples with me and, and Really, by, by, you know, by many miracles and angels, I was able to make it out of there, take a fishing boat across the Red Sea to East Africa, to Djibouti, near Somalia, go to jail there because they thought I was a smuggler, 
eventually was able to leave by contact in the State Department and it's a long, weird, funny, scary series of events. Made it to Amsterdam, from Amsterdam to the airport in San Francisco. And then there was a giant press conference for me. It was hundreds of people there. And then I flew the next day to Seattle. I made it to the conference, the first day of the conference with my coffee samples. And, you know, that was exciting that, that the coffees made it there. And, you know, I still had 14 tons that were stuck in Yemen. But I made it and the coffee samples made it. And we found really interesting people that were like loved our coffees. One of them was Blue Bottle. That was our first kind of client customer. And I was complaining about the $5 cup of coffee a couple of years back. They charged $16 for my coffee. <laughs> okay. So that's a little bit more than I've spent on a cup of coffee at a coffee shop to date. But I'm itching to have the opportunity. Now, I do know you sent me some samples to try, which are purely divine, I have to say. I've siphoned just a little bit out to enjoy during our talk here. I would like to know more about the impact you've been able to have thus far from your efforts in Yemen with the coffee farmers there, given the changes that you've made and the price that you're commanding for the coffee that they're producing. We hear a lot about the term sustainability. You know, a lot of companies have CSR programs now. And I think that there are so many problems in the world. It's, it's important for people who are build, thinking about business and enterprise, think about a problem that they can solve. What is a product or service I can build and create that can solve one of these issues and try to be impact driven as opposed to just making a bunch of money and then trying to add on a social impact component, which I always thought was, it's good to do that. It's good to, you know, figure out your carbon footprint and, and make sure you have like, you know, sustainable audits in your company. But, you know, there are a lot of problems out there. And so I think it was important for me to find that because people ask me, what is my social impact model? You know, and I'm, I, and I, my answer is my company is in essence, socially impact driven. That's what we do. There's no attachment on there. So yeah, the first question is how much would someone pay for a cup of coffee? Why would someone pay $16 a cup or $5 or that, or even $1? And I think a lot of it is we need as consumers to, to become more conscious of what we, what we consume, how we consume it. You know, when I talk about wine, we have no problem paying $20 for a glass of wine. That's some special vine from like Napa or even more sometimes. The same with a lot of things. And, and there's, we understand different la labels. Like there's like Boone Far Boone's Farm and Tupac Chuck and Carl Rossi. There's also a special Opus One and like, you know, special Screaming Eagle and Bordeaux wines. With cheese, there's there's Velveeta and Kraft, right? And then there's like special Aged Kumte. But when we talk about coffee, it's almost like this like angry reaction people get. Like, why, are, why would I pay more for this coffee? You know, the reality is when you decide to go cheap, someone has to pay for that consequence. Someone pays for that, whether you like it or not. And, and we've been taught and conditioned that coffee is cheap. It's cheap. It's $2, $1. It's, you know, it's just coffee. It's one flavor even. When it's such a vast ocean of flavors. We have coffees that go from mango and papaya to coffees that go chocolate and creme brulee flavors. Tropical flavors, you know, things that you would never think coffee could taste like. And, and that's the reality of what it is. You know, so it's, it's sad on the consumer side that you get something that's really inferior. You, know, you don't know it and you, you have to put cream and sugar to drink it make it drinkable it's kind of like having a special wagyu beef or a or kobe beef would you take that and put a bunch of steak sauce on it no because you know that it's a great piece of meat that's been taken care of and it's you know same with coffee um, and so for us like what is the price point that you should pay when i started i saw what the farmers were being paid for the local market which is really like nothing and because i was vertically integrated because like there's i am trying to shorten the distance between producers and consumers 
as much as possible. And because I can do that, the, the added costs from producer to collector, to collector, to miller, to export, to importer, to roaster, every one of those people are trying to cut corners, squeeze margins, make a business out of it. And what you lose is quality. And the farmer who did all the work is the least one who gets made, paid in this chain. Right, they're treated so, uh, as a commodity, right? They're basically, oh, well, you're treating grain on, on the global stage or something. Even the way we say like supply chain, like I use words value chain because I think everyone brings value to it. So if I can roast it and sell to the consumer directly or roaster, if I can import it myself, if I can export it, if I can mill it, if I can process it even, and I just buy directly from the farmer, I get know that my money is going 100% to this farmer. There's no other person. And I can cut all that cost to the consumer and get the value much better. So I have these benefits, but the, my disadvantages, I didn't know anything about these parts. I didn't know about supply chain management. I didn't know about marketing. I didn't know about roasting. I didn't know about packaging. I didn't know about e-commerce. Like there's so much that goes into export laws, process and fermentation. Like a lot of the work we do now is fermentation design, how we produce flavors and coffees. So being able to, to transfer that to the farmer, it, it really helps. So the farmer goes from getting paid, you know, in, in most cases, um, $2 a pound to now getting paid close to $6 a pound. That's a huge increase. That, that's a life-changing increase for them. Um, and the status quo before that was most farmers were being taken advantage of by loan sharks who gave out loans ahead of harvest at low mm-hmm. price points, these predatory loan sharks. So getting rid of that, being able to do free micro loans with no interest. Um, and so my goal is right now is I, I'm constantly trying to figure out ways to, you know, increase that value. But I've, it's been a long journey, but I'm happy to be where I am today. Yeah, well, I'm happy that you have been able to successfully bring a Yemeni's coffee to the marketplace because I had never, frankly, heard of one before we started connecting. Now, in preparation for this interview, you actually sent me two samples of coffee to try and a blind taste test. You labeled one A and one B. And I have to say, I had a strong preference for B of the two. I felt like it was earthier, darker, and a little less fruit forward. Okay, I sound like I'm talking about a wine, right? Like we've been talking about wine and terroir and things like that as they relate to grapes. I've never had this conversation specific to coffee beans, at least not like this. So now that we're talking coffee, I would like for you to just go through the basic differences of what even might differ from that A version and that B version that you sent to me as samples. Actually, pretty amazing. I'm, I'm going to read something to you. Uh, one of the last people who received that, someone, a friend of mine from the East Coast. And it's also very important to be engaged with customers and do as many focus groups as possible. Because one of the problems in business is that when, you, when your ego come, gets involved, and you think you know what's good. It's not it usually it's not the same what actually what, the, what people actually want. So for A, she wrote citrus, floral, acidic, and bright. For B, nutty, tobacco, full body, chocolate. Like the exact same profile as you gave. And basically what I did there was we've, we've been working really hard to try to produce a, because our covers cover are very expensive. We, we have them as gift boxes right now on our website. And they're amazing gifts. People who love coffee, it's like the perfect gift to give somebody. And we're trying to transition to do more, become more an everyday coffee, you know? And so with Yemen, it's, it's a big difficult because it's like kind of like Manuka honey in Hawaii or somewhere or New Zealand. It's, it's expensive. It's very limited quantity. Um, so we've been, we've been investing heavily in our supply chain and we're, you know, our current coffee offerings, it's like, a, you know, four ounces, 
which is I think a quarter of a pound uh, for about $45. It's very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, the coffee you're trying is a new coffee we're trying to call the Everyday Yemen. And it's going to be around $20 a pound, hmm. which is for eight ounces, uh, from, sorry, $40 a pound. For eight ounces, about $20, $20 for subscribers, mm-hmm. um, which is closer. 20 bucks for eight ounces, half a pound is closer to an everyday coffee price point. Right. Well, um, I think I pay about what, 15 or 20 a pound because I like to buy Pete's coffee and I buy it, get it ground fresh. And that's my preference, right? I go for Pete's Garuda, I think is one of my favorites, or I'll go for the Arabian Mocha Java. Now, beyond the names of them, I, I know the flavor profiles are different and a little bit about what makes them taste a little different. But when you have something that's so fruit forward, where literally you taste the blueberry, I mean, why? How is that coffee processed so differently from something that we might be more accustomed to as a French roast? Very good question. What, what really is happening is the darker roast coffees, the French roast, you know, it's just darker roasted and it hides those flavors, but it also hides a defect. So when you have a coffee that's medium or light roast, it's going to taste sweeter sometimes because those are coffees. If you have a coffee that has like that blueberry or, or citrus note. So here's the thing. Some people really like those notes and they want to taste those notes. And we first sent out samples of the everyday Yemen. I picked an amazing coffee that had like, it tastes like strawberry jam. It was strawberry, it was sweet, it was floral. And we, we sent it to different people and none of them liked it. <laughs> they said it was too sweet and too sour and too acidic. And I was like, well, that's what I like, you know? So in the world of coffee, there's like people who like the, the bright, acidic and sweeter coffees and, and that fruit forward. And there's folks who just like the caramel, vanilla, chocolate, full body kind of earthy flavors, which is most people actually probably 80% of people. That's all they know. They're used to that coffee. They want it. So for this coffee, we, we, we decided to do two versions, a light and a medium or medium dark. And the light one is, was a the fruity one, citrus, floral and it's one. it's the same bean. That's what you're getting at. They're the same one. B is just roasted darker. You <laughs> know, it's, it's, it's roasted darker and it, it hides those sweet, those fruit notes, but it brings out more of the caramelization of the coffee. Um, and so we were like, okay, we, if we want to help our farmers, we have to find out how to get our coffee in more people's hands. And so if you go on our website, you know, portamoka.com, you'll see this every day in a couple of weeks and you'll see, you know, um, a light version with, you know, sweet, bright, sparkling acidity. And you'll see a dark and a medium or dark medium. It says, you know, chocolate, toasted nuts, caramel or toffee. And mm-hmm. you are probably going to go towards the darker medium one. Um, it's your preference. And so we're trying to, you know, be more of a kind of bespoke and kind of, but yeah, your, your feedback was super helpful. So thank you so much for being a part of this, uh, this coffee's journey. Well, thank you. Um, But what I'll also say is, you know, I've become a little bit of a tea snob over the years, too. And what I used to know as green tea is something I wouldn't even bother drinking today. So I wonder if part of this is just the fact that we've become used to something. And if you remember probably growing up, you might have been told even the same thing I was, that coffee was an acquired taste, much like red wines are an acquired taste. And when I first started drinking red wines, guess what? I went for the darker, bolder, super rich, um, you know, Cab Sauvignons, uh, Zinfandels, Petit Syrahs. 
And now as my palette has developed and changed over the years, I'm more likely to pick a lighter bodied red wine that might be on the Pinot side grown on the coastal slopes here in Santa Cruz. So it's a little less earthy than some of the Oregon um, wines that are coming out of Willamette Valley. And that's the evolution of my palate. So perhaps just through access and trying some of these lighter roasts of really high quality coffees, the same thing will happen. Instead of, you know, going and getting the standard green tea bag that I used to buy years ago, I'll consider it in another realm where I'm actually going to a tea shop doing a tasting and picking the green teas that speak to me and that tend to be lighter and even have a different color and flavor profile that is completely different than what I traditionally knew. So that's kind of what I expect the journey to be through exposure. And I mean, I'm just excited to have the opportunity to try coffees from Yemen. I honestly had not even heard of coffees from Yemen. And I'm touching on this again, because I think most of our audience would be in the same realm. So I'd like to know a little bit more about coffee from Yemen and what makes it different from the coffees that we might be familiar with from South America and elsewhere. First of all, before I go into that, you that was such an incredible analogy. I'm definitely going to use that in my talks from now on. You hit it on the on the nail. Like that is exactly it. We hope that we can take people on this journey. You know, because not long ago I didn't drink. I I didn't like coffee. First of all, seven years ago, that's shocking to me to say now, but I just didn't. I thought it was very bitter. You know, right. and I just used it to use just to cram before exams that night or for for studying. Um, but I had this kind of evolution, just like you had with your, you know, Zinfandels and eventually you made it to your, you know, Santa Cruz, you know, more light, fruity, lighter bodied wines. I think that's a great example for coffee. And we kind of want to get them in with something that they're used to, you know, maybe, maybe they move to go for a dark to a dark chocolate with strawberry, you know, or dried fruits infused in the chocolate flavor and eventually get them to the, the, the fruitier coffees. And if not, whatever they like, we want to be able to, you know, to give it to them as long as, you know, it allows us to do the work we're doing with our farmers. Right. And, and so to answer your question, um, Yemen, there are probably there are a lot of reasons why Yemen coffee is very unique. First of all, it's interesting how like very few people know about Yemen coffee where, you know, 150 years ago, everyone knew what Yemen coffee was. It, for, for 200 years, from the 1600s to 1800s, Yemen or from the 1450s to the 1650s, Rather, Yemen had a monopoly in the world coffee market. Wow. Every only coffee in the world that was being sold was from Yemen. Uh, And even the blue bottles like found in story how the the Turkish soldiers or the Ottoman Empire was besieged in Vienna and they they lost the battle and left behind all their things. And and some of it was coffee beans that someone took and was able to open the first cafe in Vienna called the blue bottle. Those beans came from Mocha, from the port of Mocha in Yemen. Um, and, and so it's an amazing history of how coffee left Yemen to Indonesia, from Indonesia to Java, to, to the world. Um, and it's a different podcast, but um, there's a few books to read. Coffee, a Global History. It's a great book. Another one is The Merchant Houses of Mocha by Nancy Ohm. Two amazing books on the history of coffee. There are probably three characteristics that I always talk about for Yemen coffee. One is the elevation. The higher coffee is grown, the better it usually tastes and the more expensive it is because as it grows higher, it becomes, it matures slower, it develops more sugars and acids. And Yemen has like the highest, some of the highest grown coffee in the world. Most coffee in the world at 1,200 meters to 1,400 meters above sea level. Yemen is, goes up to 2,500 meters above sea level, which is 7,500 feet 
above sea level. These villages, if you go on our website, you know, portamilka.com, you can kind of see the villages. They're like on the tops of these mountains. It's insane how they live there. And they, they built these ingenious terraces to grow their produce and coffee. So that's one. The second is the, the most amount of or the oldest cultivars of coffee. So when I say cultivar variety, it's kind of like an apple. You have Granny Smith and Fuji apples and Washington apples. So in coffee, there's different types of cultivars. Tipica, Bourbon, Katwai, Katora, Gesha, Udaini. Each one tastes different, has a different flavor profile. So Yemen has an amazing amount of diversity of that. And the third, and I think you'd understand this because you understand wine, the, the lack of water in Yemen. We don't mm. really have much water. And so the trees are always stressed. And that stress on um, the trees produces more complexity in the flavor in the cup. Um, and so these are three things that make Yemen coffee very unique. It's hard to find it nowadays because there's a, just, you have to go up these mountains. The, the supply chain is so difficult, the language barrier, and it's very unsafe. For this whole period of the last 150, 20 years, Yemen has kind of been in this kind of own bubble. It, it didn't get affected by globalization, industrialization, and like it kept these, these, these like ancient cultivars untapped. And so the villages we work with typically have been growing coffee for three to 400 years. Like they have like records that go back that far. One of them actually had a record that went back 600 years. So these are very old vines or, or roots, you can say. And the older the roots are, I found, the better the coffees taste. Wow. So that's similar, too, to I think what happens with the Zinfandel grape. You know, I had the pleasure of doing an archaeology dig at its uh, Mission San Antonio de Padua, which is one of the oldest missions in California. And it's on the property with Fort Hunter Liggett right now, right? So it hasn't really been developed around there because it's military property and then the mission's preserved, right? But they have some of the oldest grapevines in all of California there specifically, like from the 1700s. Wow. Wow. And uh, the fruit they produced is quite limited today, but the berries themselves are very sweet. Uh, The vines have been super stressed because they also have very limited water. And so therefore produce higher levels of resveratrol, which you might have heard about, right? So drink your wine and get more resveratrol. I'm sure the same is true of coffee that's grown in those conditions. So quite interesting. I had just thought that for some reason, perhaps the skins had been dried on the bean or something like that to add the fruity flavor to the bean itself. And that that was adding a difference as opposed to another process. I, I just assume you're very close. Your, your, your questions are like, it's amazing that hearing someone from the outside kind of into this world I'm in. Uh, but you're right on the dot. So there are two main re- ways coffee is processed after it's picked. Because the goal is getting the seeds out of the cherry, right? And so the old way, it's called the natural process way or the sun-dried naturals. You put it in the sun and let the sun dry up the mucilage, the sticky mucilage. Then you can take it to these machines that, that separate the, the bean from the, the, the husk. The other way is called a wash process, which is probably 80% of the world which is use lots of, you, de- you depulp it. You take out the seeds out, there's the machine that depulps it and use lots of water. People like that because it's more even, it's easier to produce. But the natural process way, because the mucilage, the sticky mucilage is on the bean longer, the fruit, it, it definitely infects and, and impacts the flavor, and particularly um, the acids that it produces, one called acetic acid, mm-hmm. that in small quantities is very fruity, as it becomes a little more fermented, it becomes a kind of fruity wine, which is an amazing like place I try to find. But if you develop it too much, it becomes like vinegar. 
And oh. so people are afraid to do natural because it can mess up faster. It's also a lot more work. You have to move it with your hands and, and, and turn it on the drying tables or the patios with, with like these large sticks. Um, but I, especially with the exotic, louder, kind of bolder flavors of like these natural like um, fruits, it's an amazing, especially with for the body of it, the textile feel. They tend to produce better bodies too. So I'm a big natural coffee lover. I, I wouldn't say it's better than wash, but it depends on the coffee, really, where, where the coffee is. A lot of environmental impacts on the coffee. Wow. Well, I feel like you're helping me rediscover coffee. And so I'm excited about that next journey. I mean, I don't have to consistently just dilute my coffee with milk in order to make it palatable. I mean, I think that's why my coffee bill in in undergrad was so high, because I would just go to the coffee shop and have lattes all day to escape uh, my roommates and be able to focus on my studies, you know, because that was life then. A bunch of college kids packed into a single house, right? Anyway, that, that, that moment of coffee, like people, especially airlines, they choose coffees that have a certain smell because it calms you because it reminds you of like home or like that kind of like space. So it's very nostalgic. And that's why like some people are very like um, we love dark roast because it reminds me of a certain time in my life where I drank it. The Folgers in your cup, right? <laughs> <laughs> I never drank Folgers, so I really don't know. Now, I would like to know a little bit more about where you see this business going. Um, we've talked a little bit about some of the partnerships you have and that people can buy your coffee directly on your website. But you know, where are you seeing this develop over the course of the next few years so you can continue to have a positive impact on those farmers in Yemen and produce a more socially responsible coffee that's beyond fair trade? We've been very lucky to work with some wonderful roasting partners here in the States like uh, Blue Bottle, Intelligentsia, um, Equator Coffee in San Francisco, Terramia, George Howell. There's some really wonderful coffee shops around, Dragonfly Roasters around the country. And so anytime you see a Puerto Rico coffee in there, it's it's going to be one of our special lots. We, they they kind of go after our, our, our really cool and unique lots for those. Uh, and our website also, PuertoRico.com, we, we sell really unique coffees and we have a monthly subscription service for people who really like want to go deep into the origin of coffee. Um, so for us, you know, I just got back from Yemen. I was there for seven months. Um, so I'm going to be going back there in a couple of more months. So in terms of the business, we are definitely focusing on continuing to streamline our supply chain in Yemen and to work on building that up more. We're going to be moving towards other origins in the future. Most of the people who reach out to me are producers from other countries. And so, you know, Yemen would be our, our kind of, our, it's a very unique coffee and it's very special. And, and it's just, it's, it's a coffee that, you know, you do, when you want to splurge, you want something special, you have gifts over, it's a mm-hmm. coffee to bring out. We're going to be working on it, producing some really interesting products like these recyclable Nespresso pods that I think are going to be really great for hotels and restaurants. And then um, I'm going to send you a, a few other things we're going to launch, one called pour over pouch, which is, you know, I love making pour overs, but you have to have the grinder and then the scale and this whole thing. And so we there's a, there's a really cool Japanese way of making coffee where you just kind of, put it on top of a cup and, and you can use it one time. They're recyclable. Um, so we're, we're trying new, new ways to get coffee, to try to eliminate barriers between people and good coffee. Um, and I guess our company ethos is always trying to shorten distance between the producers and the consumers. So that's kind of our route is one, trying to find more creative ways to get coffee to people, whether it's, you know, you're an Airbnb host, you want, or you have a hotel or restaurant, you want to have something special. And the second is, trying to expand our project to other origins. There's so many other farmers in the world who have amazing coffees. 
Um, we have a special way, unique ways of fermenting and processing and roasting that we've really perfected and been lucky to win a lot of awards in, in the coffee space, which is very hard because people are very pretentious in, in the specialty coffee <laughs> community. <laughs> and it's like really hard to get uh, street cred, quote unquote. So we're very lucky yeah. to like, in 2017, we were number one coffee in the world, rated by the Coffee Review. They gave us a 97-point score, which is the highest they can give. And we got another one last year. And so we're, we're very you know, fortunate to have these kind of coffees. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm, and, and hopefully be able to, to speak with more people like you to, who ask these kind of questions and go really deep. And I've, I've done a lot of these kind of interviews, but this was very refreshing to have these kind of questions because they're, most of the questions are always superficial and they don't really go deep into the actual coffee product itself and what the business. So thank you so much for having me on here and for asking these kind of questions. Well, thank you for coming. I mean, I just love it. So I want to know one more thing. Is there a goalpost that you have down the road? One that says perhaps for you, when I get to this point, I will have done what I came to do here with Port of Mocha. Gosh, I mean, one of it is I do want people to know and to be more knowledgeable about consumer choices. And I've always wanted to educate people about when that article says it's a miracle the coffee even made it here. Actually, most coffee, it's a miracle. It gets you the way it does, whether it's from Guatemala or if it's from Yemen or for Kenya. And I think consumers, we have an opportunity to really impact the world. If millions of people do small things every day, you know, I've gone to San Diego, the border of Mexico, and I've, I've met with Guatemalan farmers who are stuck in the border, who risk their lives, their families. And I asked him, you know, why did you leave your farm? He's like, well, no one wants to pay me enough to grow coffee. And mm-hmm. so like, there's, I really want people to, uh, to, to understand how they can change the world through how they assume what they buy. And that's a long-term goal. I don't really know how, what the metric for that is. And I guess the second one, I guess the second one is like, I just, I really want to support farmers around the world um, in coffee and other industries just, and, and neither of these goals, I they have like an end goal. There's no like IPO or acquisition thing for that. I'm just happy that I found a path in my life that's more of a calling than a career. You know, there's a lot of other things I can do that, that can pay me much more money and a lot less stress. You know, mm-hmm. but I, I, I like this job. I like what I do. I like working with these producers and being around harvest patterns. And I love seeing our coffees being consumed in Japan and Paris and just just knowing the journey and that you're a part of it was just uh, it's very meaningful to me. And you know, too, that the effect you're having on the communities that you're working with from a farming perspective is one that's positive and will allow them to thrive long term as opposed to just taking them for granted at every step of the way, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, these farmers, I mean, we are a lifeline from from many of these farmers. And and I know what their lives would be like if we we couldn't support them. And so for for us, like if, if, if we decide to go cheap with farmers, they're going to stop growing coffee. You know, they're going to stop. So even as a business sustainable, you know, along the future, like farmers, there needs to be a change. We have to change the way we consume our coffee. And you don't have to buy the fruity exotic coffees. You can buy your darker roast coffees. Just make sure that the you buy local to support local business. You know, and here there's, a, there's always a local roastery in your community, in your city, in your town. And try to see, seek out places where they can tell you where the coffee is from. If they can tell you this coffee is from Colombia, from Narino region, it's going at 1,800 meters above sea level. It's a special Castillo variety. And they're, they're really excited about the, the coffee. You can tell this is probably a person I should buy from. They have this connection. So that's pretty much my, just buy local and know where your food comes from. 
Well, that's the journey. And I think we should all get there every day because, as you mentioned earlier, you know, people are breaking their backs to bring the food to our table. And we need to appreciate the effort that went into that. It doesn't happen by magic. And I think so many people just think, well, it's on the shelf in a store. Of course, the conditions were just fine. And the reality is often the opposite of that. So I applaud your efforts. Now, I want to go ahead and just thank you, Mukhtar Alkanchali, for joining us today. I also would like to offer you the floor for a moment if you want to direct people to your website. I know you also have a book that's been written about you. So people who are curious can find out more and continue on this journey. I mean, if you want to know more about my, my story, personal story and what I've gone through, but it, it's a good book to teach you a lot about coffee. It kind of uh, sneaks that in there without you knowing it because it talks about coffee history and economics. When a lot of coffee books are very academic, it's called The Monk of Mocha. I did not write it, it's by Dave Eggers. I was very fortunate to meet this wonderful individual and he's been a good friend for many years now. Um, so it's a bit about my story and someone who had a dream and is trying to pursue that dream, I guess. And our website, portofmocha.com. P-O-R-T-O-F, mocha is M-O-K-H-A. So the, the right way to spell it, dot com. And if you want to know more about our, what our service that we offer and it's a bit more of our story. Um, but yeah, again, thank you so much for, for this interview. It was really, really great to just kind of talk to you instead of just being interviewed. <laughs> <laughs> well, we dish and that's what I like to do here. So thank you so much for being a part of that and for being so open with our audience. You know, we're really just here to put a little bit more good into the world every day. That's how I look at this podcast. That's why it's social impact and sustainability. We invite people to care a little bit more so we can all be a little better together. So thank you so much, Mukhtar. This has been my sincere pleasure. Thanks so much. Now, to my audience, I'd like to invite you all to act. As I often say, it doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to feel like a Herculean effort. It could be as simple as sharing this podcast with someone in your community that you think would enjoy it, and they can learn a little bit more about coffee, where it comes from, and how they can select a better, more responsible product. To find suggestions, visit our action page on caremorebebetter.com. There you'll find causes and companies that we encourage you to support. And remember, we're not backed by the companies or the interviewees that I bring on this show. Um, this is really just an effort to put more good into the world and to help amplify the effect of really important work done by inspiring individuals like Mokhtar. I invite all of you to join the conversation and the community we're building. You can even join conversations on Clubhouse at Care More Be Better. I want to hear from you. You can even just send me an email to hello at caremorebebetter.com. Thank you, listeners, now and always, for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.